What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and I have special guest Ben Greenfield on the line today, professional biohacker. How are you, man? Well, it's shaking, baby. I'm, I'm good. That's interesting. A professional biohacker. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I've ever been described as that before, but... I, I'll take it. I don't know what the hell a Thank professional you. biohacker is, but if somebody ever writes me a check and writes in the memo that it's for the services of professional biohacking, I think I can officially call myself a, a professional biohacker. So, hey, man, we'll take it. We'll yeah. run with it. We'll I'll take it. it. Hey, maybe it all requires is just like dropping a stick of butter into your smoothie and that turns you into a biohacker. I always thought that that's was just thinking. cooking, but uh, <laughs> that's all it takes. I'm game. Shoot, yeah, man. Well, for anybody that doesn't know you and kind of all the all the things you've accomplished, give give the listeners a little brief bio here. Uh, what do you want to know? Just kind of run down some of the, I mean, all the the crazy triathlon, you know, experiences, whatnot. Just kind of give us a little little recap on who you are, what kind of where you come from, what brings you into this space in the first place. I've got a master's degree in exercise physiology and biomechanics, a uh, certified strength conditioning coach for the NSCA, a certified sports nutritionist with uh, ISSN. And I've spent the past couple of decades kind of traveling around the globe, competing in a bunch of masochistic shit, uh, training with the Navy SEALs and doing a big handful of Ironman triathlons. And I race currently as a professional Spartan athlete, used to be a, a bodybuilder. Uh, and, uh, before that I was a collegiate tennis player and I also, uh, played for the water polo team and the, uh, the volleyball team, uh, when I attended university of Idaho. And, um, now I, I'm a podcaster. I have a podcast over at bengreenfieldfitness.com. I, I, uh, write articles each week. Typically, uh, like one big article each week. I've got a, uh, a New York times bestseller book called beyond training, which is kind of like, uh, kind of a book about maximizing both performance and longevity simultaneously, like being a good athlete without actually destroying your hormones and your sleep and your inflammation levels and stuff like that. And um, I, I consult with kind of a limited number of people from around the world via Skype and on the phone to help them out with their health, their sleep, their hormones, their performance, their uh, their, their, their biohacking. You said it first. And, <laughs> uh, and basically, uh, uh, and and then I speak, you know, I spend a lot of time, you know, sitting on an airplane, traveling here and there, uh, hopping on stage and giving talks. And um, if I could say kind of like what my what my bent is, what my primary interest in is, is now it really is um, inspiring people to, to live a really adventurous and fulfilling and joyful life using a little bit of ancestral wisdom, using a little bit of modern science and uh, really getting the most out of life in terms of quality of years, quantity of years, and uh, achieving everything they want to achieve, kind of getting the most out of the human body and the human brain. So that's that's what I, I love to study now. I, I read a book a day. I pretty much stay immersed in the fitness, the nutrition, the health, and the, the biohacking sectors. And I'm pretty much a complete idiot savant when it comes to politics or finances or pop culture or Hollywood or anything like that. Cause I, I pretty much just have such a passion for the whole health industry that that's where I, I put most of my focus. So, so that's what I do in a nutshell. What made you, I mean, what, I'm kind of want to rewind here. What made you gravitate towards, you know, going down that health and nutrition path in the first place, like at what age or what like aha moment was there? Or was you it? Know, I, yeah, I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an author, and I also was very interested in computer programming. You know, I took a lot of computer programming classes, and I loved video games, and I wanted to design video games, and I was I was very into into um, honestly, I was kind of a geek, right? Like I was president of the chess club, and I played the violin, and um, my sport was tennis, so I was kind of playing a little bit of a preppy sport. But I would say two people kind of influenced me. One guy. Um, named Rafael Escamilla, who was a national competitive power lifter. He was a friend of my parents and he would come over to the house and my dad had some weights out in the garage and Rafael would go out there and lift and he was just a beast. And I would stand out there and my jaw would drop at what this guy was capable of. And he, you know, he taught me how to bench press, he taught me how to squat, he taught me how to deadlift. And, you know, and I found that I actually got better at tennis when I was doing some of this stuff. So that kind of got me into like the whole fitness part of things. And then there was this other guy the father of my my brother's best friend, this guy named Bruce. And Bruce was a bodybuilder. And he was very immersed in physical culture, 
um, nutrition, of course, being a bodybuilder, right? Nutrition and supplementation. He was really geeked out on that stuff. And um, I'll go hang out with him and just like see him, you know, make the smoothies and the supplements and the body work and the workouts. And, and both of these guys kind of inspired me to get a little bit more interested in health and fitness and physiology. And um, I even got to the point where when I started studying that stuff in college, right? So I, I decided instead of being a computer program, I want to go and exercise science. I, um, I, I got so far kind of down into that health rabbit hole that I decided I wanted to be a doctor. So I took pre-med courses. I took the MCATs. I got accepted to six different medical schools. And then I did a practicum and an internship prior to kind of like taking that dive into medical school. And this was, you know, involved being in emergency rooms and shadowing orthopedic surgeons. And I even did a stint in surgical sales for hip and knee implants and became completely disillusioned with the modern medical industry. There wasn't a single doctor that didn't seem to hate their job or warn me, like, not to go be a doctor, not to go to medical school. And they were, like, installing overpriced hip implants and obese patients who probably could have fixed all of that through lifestyle choices. And so... I decided not to be a doctor and I, I kind of pivoted and went into the fitness sector and I started a bunch of gyms and personal training studios. And because I had a, a formal education in exercise physiology and biomechanics, I really equipped a lot of my gyms with things like high speed 3D video cameras, indirect calorimetry for metabolic rate analysis, um, blood testing equipment, electrocardiography equipment. Um, a lot of these things that were kind of like forward thinking or more technology or medical based and kind of combine those with fitness tactics, you know, functional fitness and training and functional movement screens and, you know, a, kind of kind of a big focus on uh, human movement quality versus quantity. And in 2008, I was voted as America's top personal trainer. And that kind of thrust me into more of like the limelight as far as like speaking and a lot of these fitness conferences and even delving into the whole business building aspect of things, which I actually still teach to a lot of coaches and personal trainers around the world via a mentorship program that I run called Keon U. And uh, that, 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 that's kind of how I got interested in this stuff, though, was a couple of those mentors early on in the day, my love for tennis, and then kind of deciding to study at a university level, some of these things in a little bit more detail and depth. What, um, I, it sounds like you've kind of had a pretty, pretty significant progression from the, the style of training and the, the athletic realm that you've you know, gravitated towards, like with the bodybuilding starting out. And then now you kind of focused more on the, like the endurance sports, like what was the change in interest there? I mean, pretty simple, man. I, I uh, Coeur d'Alene was a city near where I was studying and where I, where I was you know, doing a lot of bodybuilding and playing a lot of sports. And I went up there and I watched uh, an Ironman triathlon, right? an Ironman triathlon. And it just, in the same way that bodybuilding is very bro science sport, but is also very geeked out as far as like, you got to have everything dialed in, right? Your nutrition, your supplementation, your training routine, your recovery protocol, your sleep, everything needs to be dialed in when you're a bodybuilder. It's an incredibly selfish sport because of that. Uh, Ironman triathlon for those same reasons appealed to me, not because I'm a selfish guy, you know, but it is, it is an inherently selfish sport because you're so geeked out on physiology and recovery and nutrition and fitness. And it's more than just like going and doing a CrossFit wad, right? You got to go and survive for, for 10, 12, you know, 14 hours out there on the course. And I was watching these people at the finish line, cross the finish line after this day of toiling with a big smile on their face after, you know, months or years of training. And I thought, damn, I want to, I want to do that. So I jumped into a little sprint triathlon at my university and I actually won that. Uh, and I think that was just because of, you know, a, stubbornness and a high lactic acid tolerance from being a bodybuilder. And at that point I'd started to play water polo. So I was a decent swimmer and I, I still had a, a little bit of foot speed from being a tennis player. And for some reason, I don't know if it's my, my femur bone length or whatever, but I, I seem to be able to ride a bike really fast. So I won that triathlon and, and then I just like trained for a year and I did an Ironman triathlon and I did really well in that and qualified for Ironman world championships. And I spent like the next 10 years competing in Ironman triathlons. And uh, really part of it was just, it, it, it was a really good avenue for me to practice everything that I was learning and implementing with my clients, everything from bike fits to running biomechanics, to supplementation, to nutrition, to, you know, recovery tactics. It was kind of like a really good field of battle for me to, 
to live life in the trenches and, and to, to practice a lot of these cool concepts I was learning in university and then later on just from ongoing research and, and work with clients. What is your like nutritional uh, you know, protocol and change in, in nutrition and supplementation look like over the course of those several years kind of as you change your training styles and has your nutrition changed and evolved? Well, as a bodybuilder, I was very high protein, very low carbohydrate, very low fat, right? So a typical dinner would be like four cans of tuna fish with a little bit of relish mixed in and maybe a dab of ketchup, right? To, to mm -hmm. wash it all down with and, you know, or, or like, a, you know, if you, whatever sirloin steak happened to be on sale at the grocery store, sauteed up with some, some veggies, you know, lunch would be like a couple of protein bars or, you know, an ABB bodybuilding shake, you know, just like a bunch of chemicals in a can. Breakfast, of course, a whole bunch of eggs, but egg whites, right? Not the yolk. Um, typically, like a lean meat, or you know, another example of lunch would be the stereotypical like broccoli and lean chicken, right? So, so very fat phobic, very carb phobic, um, and then high amount of protein. And then, of course, for the bodybuilding shows, what you do is your your glycogen synthase levels are just like so starved for carbohydrate that. You, know, you get up on stage and you pose after you know going through a pretty intensive diuretic protocol, things like dandelion extract to the point where you're peeing yellow or orange and your body fat percentage is low and your body water is low and you're striated and your skin's just like tight to the muscles. And then you, you carbohydrate low during the rest of the day. Then you just explode on stage in the evening after eating pancakes and ice cream and carbs all day. And then you compete and you, you just eat like a freak for the next month and refuel. And then you, you go back into that, that high protein, low fat, low carb stage, rinse, wash and repeat. It's, you know, due to a variety of factors from ammonia toxicity to, to increased mTOR activation, to lack of fiber, to lack of available glucans and glucose for joint formation and hormones and thyroid to lack of fat for cell membranes and cholesterol and hormones. It's a horrible diet, but it's a really good way to, you know, put on muscle and, and, uh, lean out and I would eat 6,000 to 8,000 calories a day, high protein, low carb, low fat. And then when I got into Ironman for about the first seven years, I did a complete 180 and I ate a stereotypical endurance athlete diet of oatmeal and scones and biscotti and pancakes and energy bars and 55 to 75% carbohydrate uh, with typically leading into a race like an Ironman triathlon kind of uh, what you do typically is you deplete carbohydrates the week prior to the race. So you eat like 20 to 30% carbohydrate intake for let's say the Saturday before the race and the Sunday before the race, if you're going to race the next Saturday or Sunday, and then throughout the week, you increase your carbohydrate percentage, uh, to, you know, 40% and 50%. And by the time you get to like the Saturday before a Sunday race, say, you know, it's 90% carbs. So you wake up and you have a stack of pancakes for breakfast, typically like a big bowl of spaghetti. Uh, for lunch, usually a couple of bottles of Gatorade in between breakfast and lunch, uh, a lot of orange juice, a lot of Gatorade, a lot of sports drinks before lunch and dinner and or between lunch and dinner. And then dinner is typically like, uh, you know, bread, sandwiches, pasta, spaghetti, um, a lot of cakes, a lot of candy, a lot of cookies. And then you, you, know, you go to bed and you get up and you have uh, more carbohydrates or you wake up at 3 a.m. and have a bowl of oatmeal Then you go compete. And about seven years into that, I had basically the equivalent of pre-diabetes, small mm -hmm. intestinal bacterial overgrowth from all the carbohydrate fermentation, yeast, fungus, candida, um, <laughs> extremely high hemoglobin A1C, fasted glucose above 100. Uh, and, you know, I was fast. I had full glycogen levels all the time, aside from that, that brief carbohydrate deload before a race. But, you know, ultimately I realized that that was kind of doing a number on my body. And like, even just like the... You know, the high, you, you think high protein, low carb, low fat bodybuilding approach is bad. I mean, yeah, you're, you're shitting out a straw and your farts are pretty nasty. But I mean, that whole like those seven years of Ironman, like my stomach would be like a freaking balloon. Mm -hmm. And I would just like, I would fart incessantly because I had so many carbs and so much candida and yeast and fungus and SIBO and nasty scenario. Not a healthy sport. If you're, if you're going to, I mean, not a healthy sport anyways, just because the human body isn't really naturally equipped to just like go to battle every day for long periods of time with chronic cardio. 
and then of course you dump a bunch of carbohydrates into the equation that are typically processed carbohydrates and don't get me wrong there are certain populations like you know um let's see the catavan islanders who have an apoe44 issue who don't respond well to a high saturated fat diet or a traditional ketotic diet and sure those people respond pretty well to to higher amount of starches tubers um you know coconut starch uh fiber plant matter but that's far different than just like you know eating breakfast lunch and dinner at a coffee shop out of the bakery case right so um so yeah that that was how i lived and once i really discovered that you know frankly i lay a lot of this out in my book uh, beyond training that i kind of wrote as i was trying to reverse a lot of the damage of some of those nutritional and training issues i thought well if i can if i can be just as fast Maybe not faster. I wouldn't argue that you could be faster eating lower amount of carbohydrates. But if I could, if I could maintain my performance and eat fewer carbohydrates, why not give this a try? So in 2013, I began to experiment with with ketosis. I shifted my, you know, I'm I'm one of those all or nothing guys, right? So I jumped full in. You know, I I switched to very high fat. You know, avocado seeds, nuts, nut butter, uh, coconut oil. Um, you know, a lot of Mediterranean fats, extra virgin olive oil, medium chain triglycerides. Um, so low carb, moderate protein, uh, very high fat diet. And I began to do things like, you know, instead of consuming carbohydrates and Gatorades and sports drinks during my competitions, I switched to things like you can super starch at a, maybe 100 calories of carbohydrate per hour versus the traditional endurance athlete intake of 300 to 400 calories of carbohydrate per hour during competition. And then I would, I would fill in the gaps, the caloric gaps with things like essential amino acids, which I still use to this day. Uh, you know, right now while we're talking, you know, I haven't eaten, you know, in maybe 16 hours, but I, well, I say I haven't eaten, I haven't eaten a traditional meal, but like I'm, I'm fueled right now on ketone esters from the company human and then essential amino acids from my company Keon. Right. And so I'll, I'll use something like that. But way back in 2013, right, I was using MCTs. I was using essential amino acids. I was using a very low amount of a slow release carbohydrate, a resistant starch, like a UCAN super starch, uh, or a Vitargo was another brand that I would use as like a potato based starch in very small amounts. And then a lot of electrolytes because I figured out very early on that if I could maintain high amounts of magnesium and potassium and trace minerals, I could stave off a lot of the dizziness that I that I got for the first several months that I kind of switched to that low carb type of approach. Uh, just mm -hmm. because, of course, you dump glycogen along with glycogen, you dump electrolytes. Um, so I so I followed that diet for a while, and I even participated in a in Jeff Volok's lab study called Faster, where he took a bunch of athletes who were eating a diet similar to what I've just described and compared those endurance athletes to a group of endurance athletes who were fueling with a traditional high carbohydrate, 55 to 75% carbohydrate based diet and found that the fat based group who followed this high fat diet, not for two days or four days or two weeks or four weeks, like many studies do, but who actually became what we call fat adapted, right? Who increased mitochondrial density, beta oxidation, um, you know, throughput of, of triglycerides in the liver, ketone production, everything to enhance fatty acid utilization uh, that, that takes, you know, it takes a good one to two years to really make that full shift, especially as an athlete into the ability to be able to maintain ketosis for something like performance or to really feel good on ketosis just due to your ability to be able to build enough mitochondria and, uh, and beta oxidation potential and all these things that are necessary to shift yourself into full ketosis. Well, he had us, Jeff Volek, for that faster study at University of Connecticut, he had us, you know, make sure that, that any athlete, the, the low carb athlete coming in had to follow that diet for at least six months. You know, for me, it was about 12 to 13 months and found that not only did we burn an enormously higher amount of fat at rest, but we were burning like 1.5 to 1.7 grams of fat per minute during exercise uh, compared to what physiology textbooks tell you is the maximum amount of fat the human body can burn, which is one gram per minute. So we rewrote the physiology textbooks with that study. And not only that, but our performance wasn't better. And I still don't argue that you can do better on a high fat diet from a performance standpoint. Uh, and, and perhaps for some explosive sports, you do worse from a performance standpoint, but we definitely performed the same as the high carb 
athletes, but with, of course, less of the physiological health issues that could occur with a high amount of glycemic variability, with less of the gut fermentation that can occur with a high carbohydrate intake. So we were healthier athletes across the board metabolically with the same performance levels. And so the only caveat to that was I had low testosterone and really high TSH and low T3. Right. So, so my endocrine system did, was not responding well to a ketotic diet in the presence of high amounts of physical activity. So since then, in the past four years, four to five years, I have made a switch and now I follow essentially what I would call a cyclic ketotic diet, meaning I eat zero to no carbohydrates the entire day. I eat a large amount of plant matter, a lot of fiber. We grow, you know, a lot of our own fruits and are not, not see, I still make that mistake. That, that's still like a mistake for me from back in my fitness days, right? Lumping fruits and vegetables into the same category. Mm -hmm. I don't do a lot of fruits. I, I have a small amount of berries here and there, but basically I eat a lot of vegetables, a lot of produce, from, from the land, from the wild plants that grow around us in the forest up here in Spokane, Washington. We've got eight raised garden beds and we have chickens and goats. And so I eat almost like a Weston A. Price-ish diet where I'm, I'm open to the idea of raw dairy uh, and uh, grains. I'll get to those in a second. But basically, I eat a lot of produce, a lot of Mediterranean-based fats, about... Eight to 10% of my fat intake is from saturated fats because I am an APOE 3-4 gene carrier. So I actually do better from an inflammatory and a cardiovascular or lipid panel standpoint with things like olive oil, seeds, nuts, uh, hemp seeds, flax seeds, chia seeds, um, uh, avocados, a lot, a lot of these things. Rather, So I don't do a lot of coconut oil and a lot of butter. I instead eat a lot of monounsaturated fats. And a certain mm -hmm. amount of, of even polyunsaturated fats from some of these seed-based oils, what we would call parent-based oils, a ton of plant matter. And then returning to this cyclic ketosis piece and kind of this Weston A. Prices piece, at the end of the day, I eat ad libitum as many carbohydrates as I'd like, which is about 100 to 200 grams of carbs. And that comes from anything from like quinoa to amaranth to millet to my wife's slow fermented sourdough bread that she makes to white rice or sushi to sweet potatoes to yams to tubers to beets to carrots to parsnips and you know, i just have as many carbohydrates as i feel like a little bit of you know red wine a little bit of dark chocolate and um then i i and and i should caveat that prior to that i do a lot of things to stabilize glycemic variability like bitters and digestifs apple cider vinegar ceylon cinnamon bitter melon extract Berberine, a lot of these things that will stabilize my blood glucose response to that carbohydrate feed. Mm -hmm. That allows me to still maintain a high amount of throughput as not only an endurance athlete, but currently as a Spartan athlete, someone who competes in a sport that requires both aerobic and anaerobic capacity. So I would say if I were aerobic only, I could probably do a little less of that carbohydrate. But in adopting that approach of cyclic ketosis, I've been able to maintain performance. Uh, my thyroid has restored to normal. My testosterone has gone back up and that's the way that I eat now. So it's basically a cyclic ketotic diet with a high amount of plant matter, uh, 12 to 16 hour intermittent fast after that evening carbohydrate refeed. So if I finish dinner at, you know, eight, I'll typically eat around 10 AM or so for breakfast. And then, uh, occasionally a 24 hour fast to make sure that I give my gut a break and to also make sure that I'm. I'm still kind of maintaining my my ability to be able to rely upon my own fats as a fuel. I also consider fasting to be a little bit of a spiritual discipline, and um, that's that's basically in a, in a nutshell uh, my diet. And still, I should add in also because I'm I'm an athlete and you know in ketosis most of the day. A lot of minerals. You know, I do a lot of trace liquid minerals. I do a lot of salts. Uh, so when I'm consuming vegetables and oils all day long with you know kind of small amounts of protein like sardines or anchovies or oysters or you know little bits of steak thrown in here and there I'm still getting a lot of fats from monounsaturated fats and Mediterranean fat sources I'm still getting a lot of minerals from sea salt and trace liquid minerals and so I definitely throw those into the mix as well and then um, finally from a supplementation standpoint like I mentioned I do things that eat in the evening to reduce glycemic variability and enhance my blood glucose response to a meal and then typically in the morning, I, I actually take a lot of fish oil. I take about anywhere from 10 to 20 grams of fish oil. 
I take a multivitamin, the thorn multivitamin, which gives me some methyl tetrahydrofolate and some curcumin. And it's just like kind of like a shotgun dose of what I need. I do about five grams of creatine a day. Um, if I'm traveling and I'm not eating a lot of plant matter, I'll usually travel with some kind of a greens powder or a greens mm -hmm. supplement, you know, like whether an athletic greens or organifi or you know, any of these, these green supplements that are out there. Um, I use ketone salts. I use ketone esters, particularly for my workouts. I use essential amino acids, particularly for my workouts. And then uh, from a gut health standpoint, I take colostrum. I eat a wide variety of fermented foods. I, I like to do that instead of probiotics, even though, again, when I travel, I'll use, uh, I'll use probiotics. And uh, um, everything else is just kind of, you know, like a Swiss army knife, right? So like if I want to if I've been traveling a lot and I have a lot of inflammation, I'll take like nicotinamide riboside or, you know, resveratrol or things that will shut down a lot of uh, oxidation or enhance my, uh, my NF kappa B response or, or shut down my NF kappa B response. Um, you know, I'll, I drink hydrogen rich water. You know, I, I have a lot of little, you know, supplements I'm usually experimenting with, but really my, my basics are good fish oil, good multi creatine, uh, some bitters and, and digestives before my evening meal. Uh, and then the only other thing I would throw in there is that for sleep, uh, for me, I find that not only maintaining a high mineral intake, like I mentioned, but I also use a little bit of melatonin in the evenings. I like this supplement made by Doc Kirk Parsley called Sleep Remedy. And then there's also uh, CBD. And I take typically one serving of this Sleep Remedy with about 30 to 40 milligrams of CBD before bed. And I, I just sleep like a rock. So that works really well for me is kind of combining relatively high dose CBD with, uh, with sleep remedy. And, uh, and that, that's kind of like my sleep stack. With the melatonin, I've always found that I wake up groggy. Does the CBD kind of counteract that? Uh, I don't take much. It's about 0 0.3 milligrams of melatonin. And then when I travel, like I'll go to Japan next week to speak over in Japan. And the first day that I travel, I find that I can really limit jet lag by doing high dose melatonin, probably because melatonin is a pretty potent antioxidant. A lot of people don't realize that it's, it's got a lot of antioxidant mitochondrial support potential. Uh, and of course it helps to reset the circadian rhythm kind of acts on the suprachiasmatic nucleus to, to enhance your, your circadian clock. So I actually take about 40 to 50 milligrams of melatonin when I travel on the first night. Right. And then mm -hmm. I go back in that microdose where I'm just taking 0 0.3, but no, I don't. I don't find that I wake too uh, too groggy with melatonin, and even if I do with that high dose melatonin, it's gone within you know like thirty to sixty minutes after I wake up. Yeah, yeah. What What about your training time? Like with you kind of do like a twenty four hour cyclical keto approach. When do you try and normally train throughout the day? Usually in the morning, I do something very simple and easy to kind of jumpstart, speak of the devil, my circadian rhythm or to kind of ease myself into the day. You have a natural cortisol release when you wake up. Typically, I have a cup of coffee in the morning, just a cup of black coffee. I'll sometimes put some mushroom extract in it, like the Four Sigmatic 10 mushroom blend or a little bit of chaga or something like that in the coffee. But I don't really do like a, like a you know, bulletproof-ish type of coffee in the morning. I just have a regular cup of black coffee, sometimes with some mushrooms in it. But between the coffee, which causes a cortisol release, and the natural cortisol release that I get in the morning anyways, uh, I don't want to dump a whole bunch more cortisol into the equation by doing a hard workout at the beginning of the day. And furthermore, because your body temperature peaks, your reaction time peaks, your grip strength peaks, your post-workout protein synthesis peaks, all these things peak later on in the day that make a harder workout if you can handle it from a scheduling standpoint better to do between about 4 and 7 p.m. Right? You just want to finish up a hard workout at least three hours prior to bedtime because anything closer to three hours before bedtime and it can kind of affect sleep cycles. I, I save my hard workout for the afternoon to the early evening and I'll do like a walk in the sunshine or an easy swim or a sauna session in the morning and then do more like uh, typically most of my training is, is strength, endurance, concurrent training in the evening. So a workout for me might be you know, a circuit where it's like, you know, assault bike, loaded push-ups, goblet squats, deadlifts, pull-ups, uh, you know, two-minute run, 
uh, front plank and then back into the assault bike, you know, and I'll do like an AMRAP of that for, for time, right. For 45 minutes or something like that. So, you know, for me, for like Spartan training, the idea is you just go back and forth between endurance and strength. And so that's typically how I'll train in the, in the afternoon or the early evening, but the morning is kind of easy stuff. You know, like I mentioned, walks, swims, sauna or cold thermo, things along those lines. And you get like a full blown obstacle course in your backyard there too, right? Yeah, I hang a bunch of ropes from the trees, horizontal ropes and vertical ropes. I've got, you know, kind of logs that you crawl over, barbed wire crawl, some hay bales that you can throw spears at, some some bow shooting targets because I do a lot of bow shooting, some monkey bars, some some uh, like little rock holding type of handles that you swing from, uh, a few walls that you climb over. So yeah, sometimes a workout for me will just be like, you know, doing a, doing a, uh, you know, or from one to four loops through my obstacle course. So that's, that's another way that I'll train. Typically that's the type of training session I would do like on a Saturday morning. Very cool. Very cool. You were very adamant about getting a lot of vegetation in throughout the day. What is your take on like the whole carnivore approach? It's really hot right now. I think it's bullshit. You really can't find many populations on the face of the planet who thrive primarily on a carnivorous diet or primarily on a vegan or plant-based diet. Maybe you could say the Loma Linda population, the Seventh-day Adventist, but even they have so many lifestyle factors, clean living, no alcohol, no smoking, a lot of friends, family relationships, belief in a higher power, purpose in life. You just can't say that you can attribute their longevity to a plant-based diet. I think they live long despite their diet, not because of their diet. Uh, primarily, you tend to see omnivorous diets in most of the world's longest living populations and healthiest populations, whether that's, you know, rice, fish, plants, meat, eggs, etc. I think that a carnivorous diet not only can lead to some amount of micronutrient deficiencies or fiber deficiencies or both, um, but I think that based off some of the lab values I've seen from some prolific people who are following the carnivorous diet, everything from elevated insulin and IGF-1 to elevated glucose to some of these parameters that indicate perhaps uh, too high a state of anabolism, I think it's risky. Um, and I also think that uh, for, for me, honestly, as as a foodie, you know, and this kind of relates back to my my name dropping of the Weston A. Price diet. I'm a fan of just like eating God's good green earth, right? Like all these different things we can find growing in nature, wild plants and essential oils and eggs and fish and meat and kale and bok choy and mushrooms and beets and berries. And, you know, there's there's so many good things around us that to thrive primarily on an all meat diet it just really restricts you from enjoying the culinary aspects of life to a certain extent. And don't get me wrong. I love a freaking like bone in French cut ribeye steak and a beer can chicken and a cedar plank salmon. And I could do a carnivore based diet and be somewhat happy. But at the same time, I'm a little bit concerned about antioxidant, herb, spice, um, plant based intake little bit concerned about the microbiome and what could happen in the absence of enough prebiotic and a little bit concerned about the potential for constant mTOR activation or a constant state of anabolism or even just you know a lot of gluconeogenesis from a high amount of protein throughput yeah that's one thing i see like with people that are doing carnivore now their protein content is often just through the roof and i always advocate if you're going to do carnivore you try and have somewhat of a ketogenic macro ratio as opposed to just elevated protein which is hard to do if you're eating only meat because unless you're doing a lot of wild caught salmon um it you know and and just just fish in general it can be difficult to maintain a good macronutrient ratio without a large amount of the fat percentage come from coming from marbled saturated fat and again for a lot of people especially people who carry like maybe an apoe 3444 gene people with familial hypercholesteremia, et cetera, that might not be doing their lipid panel or their cardiovascular health any favors. So I think it is difficult to get a good, healthy, natural fatty acid ratio uh, living primarily on meat as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. With, with the clients that you work with, is there like a particular blood panel test that you recommend to kind of get as a baseline and then kind of adjust from there? You know, if, if you do a Google search for Ben Greenfield uh, longevity panel, that's one that I worked with Wellness FX to design. It's what I consider to be one of the more complete blood panels out there. 
but it's just a full blood panel, right? It's not just your CBC and your metabolic profile, but it's also, you know, pretty deep dive into the lipid panel as far as particle count and, and uh, density is concerned. It's a pretty deep dive into hormones. It's a full thyroid panel rather than just say TSH, right? So it's T3 and T4 and reverse T3 and uh, thyroid antibodies. And then it includes like red blood cell magnesium and minerals and, you know, full kidney panel, full white blood cell panel, full red blood cell panel. So I like something like that. Um, that's one that I recommend. It doesn't really test for the gut, of course. So I really like uh, the Genova three-day panel for the gut or for an even deeper dive into the microbiome, something like the Viome panel for a complete microbiome analysis. For micronutrients, there's a really good one uh, called the 40... Uh, what is the the amino acids ion profile? Forty amino acids ion profile from uh, SpectraCell. That's a really good mm -hmm. one for micronutrient analysis. So now you've got your blood covered, your your major aspects of your blood covered. You've got your gut covered. You've got your micronutrients covered, and then uh, the only other two that I would say would be pretty pretty good options for people would be a genetic test, like get a twenty three andMe panel, but then take your raw data and export that to a service like say Stratagene, which is a really good one that will allow you to take a deeper dive into genetic factors that could influence your health, your supplements and your nutrition choices uh, versus just the basic data that 23andMe will give you. And then the other one that I really like from a food allergy standpoint, even though Viome does a decent job with associating certain sensitivities to foods based on bacterial profiles, as far as a true immunoglobulin and inflammatory response to foods that doesn't give a lot of false positives like an ALCAT test or an ELISA test would, I'm a fan of the, the Cyrex panel. Uh, for example, Cyrex has a great series of panels that will test for everything from mold and fungus sensitivity and presence of those to uh, sensitivity to gluten cross-reactive foods such as coffee or corn to just full-blown food allergies. You know, for example, I, uh, I I used to feel like shit whenever I'd have green beans, right? And I thought maybe you know maybe it's lectins, maybe whatever. But it turns out I'm I'm just you know uh, there's very few plants that I have a a reaction to on my Cyrex panel, but corn and green beans are two that that I have quantified. It's just two food groups I just freaking stay away from, and I feel a lot better when I do that. You know, I look at my Viome panel and the amount of uh, bacteria that I have, my bacterial balance. There are certain foods also that I stay away from based on my Viome panel, like garlic and onions are two examples. So, um, you know, th those are the basic tests though. So like the Greenfield longevity panel, uh, a three-day stool test and or the Viome panel, a genetic evaluation, uh, micronutrient analysis via something like SpectraCell, uh, and then uh, something like a Cyrex uh, food allergy panel, and th that would be like the gold standard. Obviously, that's like 2000 bucks worth of testing, but that would be kind of like the gold standard. And then just on a daily basis, right? I'm a fan of if you can track your blood glucose, or get your hands on a continuous blood glucose monitor to see how your blood glucose is responding. Great. You can have like an easy ketone measurement, like a keto mojo or a level device to test ketones. That can be helpful. Uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan of incessantly worrying or quantifying over your diet on a daily basis. I think it can suck some of the enjoyment out of life, but I would say probably the, the best way to do it without being too distracted by constantly pricking your finger, et cetera, is to just get your hands on like a freestyle Libre or a Dexcom G5 and just wear a continuous blood glucose monitor. And then, mm -hmm. um, the other two parameters that I look at would be a, I track heart rate variability and B, I track sleep. And right now I use the uh, the Aura ring for that stuff. So so those would be the the biggies. Very nice, very nice. What what about uh what about your kids? What do you treat how do you treat them with regard to nutrition? Uh so with our kids, basically we just kind of they they eat what mom and dad eat. Uh, meaning that they always have since they were babies, you know, we just cut our food into tiny pieces, whether it's sardines or liver or avocado or or anything else, you know, even some of these more potent or pungent plants and herbs and spices like bok choy or kale or the stinky ones like Brussels sprouts and cruciferous like, you know, cauliflower or, you know, broccoli. And they just have always eaten what mom and dad eat. Same thing when we go to restaurants, right? We just don't pull out the food menu for the kids with the chicken fingers and the corn dogs and, and all that kind of stuff on it. And we instead 
will bring the kids the adult menu or have the way to bring the kids the adult menu and the kids will just split an entree off of that. And so the only difference in the kids diet versus my diet, I mean that, you know, they, they eat pretty much everything I eat, organ meats and sardines and avocados and a lot of plants and olive oil. And they eat what I eat for dinner and they even will do like, you know, they'll make themselves pasta and, the, and, and do, you know, like miracle noodles and shirataki yam instead of regular pasta. But the two things that they do that would probably be different from me is a, they'll a lot of times like make themselves like a, you know, a, a fermented sourdough pancake or waffle for breakfast. They're big time into food. They even have a food podcast called Go Greenfields where they create recipes and stuff like that. And they, they love to make themselves a little breakfast in the morning. And a lot of times they're carbohydrate based, you know, they'll do like an overnight oatmeal or pancakes or waffles. And other mornings they'll do eggs and bacon. Sometimes they'll just make themselves like they'll get out some Organifi juice or protein powder. And sometimes they'll make themselves a smoothie, but they're widely varied as far as their macronutrient ratios for breakfast, which I don't care about because a child's metabolic rate is so high and my kids are relatively fat adapted just because they didn't really grow up on a lot of like cereal and baked goodies and so i'm not that concerned about their metabolic response or their glycemic response to those foods they're running around at school all day anyways and then the other thing they'll do is typically when they come home from school they've been running around all day and a lot of times then they're off to jujitsu or tennis or something else they'll have like you know more sourdough bread with some almond butter and honey on it or they'll eat one of my you know, one of my Keon bars, which is like cacao nibs and honey and, and, um, you know, coconut flakes and chia seeds and sesame seeds and almonds and stuff like that. And I, I formulated that bar, not as a ketogenic bar, but more as just like a clean food energy bar that just gives you a bunch of superfoods in one dose. And so they'll do something like that, or they'll do like, you know, some of mom's uh, rice crackers or, or flaxseed crackers that she makes. And, you know, sometimes they'll put honey or something on those. Uh, and sometimes they'll do like an apple or a pear or a handful of berries. So they kind of have a little bit more carbohydrates kind of sprinkled throughout the day compared mm -hmm. to to what I consume. But because, you know, a child's metabolic rate is is so high anyways, um, and they're so active and, and and just so much better able to handle some of that glycemic variability. And they also, unlike dad, who made a lot of mistakes in life and created a lot of carbohydrate fermentation issues and created a lot of insulin sensitivity issues, um, they don't have to worry about that stuff as much. And they can eat a little bit more varied diet from a macronutrient ratio. But the, the big thing is that they just kind of always ate what mom and dad ate. There was never like the separate kids dinner at the restaurant the you know household i grew up in like you know if mom and dad were going to have like steak and asparagus uh and you know some some kind of you know quinoa or amaranth or millet or something like that they would have what they would eat and then the kids because that's adult food would have like macaroni and cheese on the side or they'd order some take and bake pizza or something like that so there would be like the kids meal and then the adults meal and that's not the way that our house is like we just all eat the same meal the kids just have smaller portions or you know, from the time they were babies, portions that are chewed up by us or blended or whatever, but they kind of achieve that taste for what the adults are eating. So that's, that's kind of the way that my kids diet looks. And then they take, uh, they take lion's mane because they, like me, carry the genetic factor for being slightly lower in BDNF, brain derived neurotrophic factor. So they do lion's mane. Uh, they, like me, carry the gene that affects superoxide dismutase production. So they also take a sublingual glutathione. They take a fish oil just for general cognitive health. Uh, and that fish oil is blended with a vitamin D and a vitamin K, which we found to be really good for their teeth and their bones. Um, and then they, because glyphosate is so prevalent even, you know, probably on the produce growing on our land, just due to air contamination, soil contamination, they and me take a supplement called Restore, which is basically just like this this lignite from soil that helps to protect and, and coat the lining of the gut against the ravages of, of glyphosate. So they do a little bit of supplementation as well. And then when I travel with them, actually, they, they like me, take some melatonin because they travel around with me to a lot of my conferences and stuff. And they just they sleep a lot better with that. So so they, they take supplements also. Very cool. Very cool. I like, I like that approach to like kids nutrition for sure so many parents trying to just totally go the opposite direction they are and there's no there's no need for it yeah i got two yeah. more questions for you man uh you you've been doing this this like you know dive into nutrition and and just improving the body for how many years now would you say oh uh, 
I'm 37 and I've been into this stuff since I was 14. So, you know, over a couple of decades. So in those decades, what is one thing, like if you could pick one thing that you were just sold on from the beginning and then if you totally changed and done a 180 on, what would that be? Well, some of the stuff we already, we already covered, but I would say, you know, honestly, one of the big ones, and I know I, I kind of talked about this, but it would be the fact that I, I kind of thought that the way you do a high fat ketotic diet is with a lot of MCTs and a lot of butter and a lot of coconut oil. And just based on my own testing, genetic testing, paying attention to my lipid panel, my inflammatory markers, my overall feeling, heart rate variability, sleep, everything. I've found that a real Mediterranean approach, rich in monounsaturated fats and very high in plant matter, uh, works a lot better than what I think a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of biohackers are doing, right? This whole like butter or coconut oil. And, and the reason I'm saying that is I know that your podcast is a keto podcast. And I know that's the type of diet that's presented to us a lot of the time. But I mean, there, there is kind of a dark side to just like coconut manna, coconut oil, coconut butter, butter, uh, heavy cream, dairy, et cetera. And I've found for myself and a lot of the clients that I work with more of like a plant rich Mediterranean approach that's skewed more toward monounsaturated fats seems to work uh, monounsaturated fats and also fish oil. Honestly, that seems to work a lot better than just like achieving ketosis through cheese and cream and butter and coconut oil. Do you know, like if you were to look at your macros throughout the day, do you know what percentage of your fats are monounsaturated versus saturated? No, but like I mentioned, I'm about 8 to 10% of my total fat intake from saturated. So to put that into perspective for you, I might have a little piece of hard Parmesan cheese with my salad at lunch, like meaning like a teaspoon. And I might have a, a little bit of like coconut manna or coconut oil blended up in the evening with like some golden milk, you know, like, like a, like a turmeric type of thing, or like blended up with some ice and avocado to make myself a little ice cream in the evenings. And I might have a little pat of butter on sourdough bread at dinner that my wife makes. So I might, you know, if you were to look at my total saturated fat intake during the day, it might come out to what you could fit on a deck of cards. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's pretty much the opposite of what a lot of people in the space are doing right now. Yeah. I definitely, uh, I, I've been wanting to increase my monounsaturated fat intake. So I'm, I'm going to take heed of your advice and do that for sure. Yeah. Just get like a good extra virgin olive oil, uh, you know, get, get some good raw seeds and nuts get, even though, you know, of course those are high in omega-6 fatty acids, but you need a certain amount of omega-6 fatty acids. And if your omega-3 ratio is skewed too much, you actually, uh, you kind of, you, you disrupt cardiolipin on the cell membrane and you can actually create some health issues with too much omega-3s, not enough omega-6s. But extra virgin olive oil, seeds, nuts, avocados, um, avocado oil. Uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, like I mentioned, a lot of chia seeds, a lot of hemp seeds, um, a lot of fish, sardines, shellfish, uh, and even like I do a lot of algae, like spirulina and chlorella. Like there's a lot of ways to get your fatty acids without necessarily just like eating a stick of butter. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, the other question, man, in those two decades that you've been doing this, was there any particular moment through like a triathlon race, like a Spartan race or any just like doing hard shit moment where you like had an aha, like saw Jesus moment like this, this was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And then that had a catapulting effect on you going forward. A lot of this hard stuff just makes you stronger. It makes you harder to kill. It increases cellular resilience, but also mental resilience. And one of the reasons that I've done a lot of this stuff is not only to inspire other people to live kind of a more adventurous life, but to challenge myself to get out there and to break away from the office and to just like, you know, taste death, taste danger and experience the thrill and the adrenaline rush that frankly just like kind of leaves me excited for life and gives me like a you know, an icky guy in the morning getting out of bed and, and just like, you know, including training and taking care of my body because I know I have to be standing on the field of the battle in three months or six months or the next week or whatever. Like, I just love that shit. Uh, and I would say if I could, if I could paint one picture for you, and this is, this will be a perfect place for us to end, I think. Uh, it would be like going down and doing Kokoro, which is a camp where you train with the Navy SEALs for, for, you know, about three or four days. And I remember sitting in the Pacific ocean, just drenched in water after a, a 26 mile hike and, 
you know, doing Murph with a 50 pound weighted pack and just getting beat down on what they call the grinder down there in Encinitas for hours on end. And, you know, I'd shown up at 10 a.m. in the morning and just got thrust, you know, straight into the fire. And um, this would have been about 7 p.m. at night. I'd been sitting in the water for an hour with about 20 other people just shaking, whole body shivering, near hypothermia, blue lips, blue fingers, you know, shit in my pants. And, and just felt as though I was going to die right there and then. Like my body was just ready to, to pass out and be done. And I'd maybe have the equivalent of one MRE, you know, which is basically just like, you know, peanut butter and dried lasagna or whatever, you know, over the course of the past 12 hours of just like getting put through the, through the ringer. And I'm sitting there in the water, you know, another huge way. We're not talking about like pleasant Bahamas water. We're talking about freaking cold Pacific Ocean water in September. And, you know, wave after wave is hitting you in the face and filling your nose and your mouth with stinging salt water. And, and you get knocked back on your back against the sand and then you come up and another wave hits you and you get knocked back. You know, you're sitting there in an hour and, and you don't know how much longer you're going to be sitting in the water, maybe two hours, maybe three hours. They'll, they'll pull you out before you die, but they get you as, you know, as close as they can get you. And, um, I'm watching the sun go down, I'm watching the sun go down. Right. And, uh, you talk about that come to Jesus moment or just like a moment of distinct realization of, you know, the fact that I got to really learn about what the human body is capable of. I thought, geez, I got to watch two more sunsets before this thing is even over. And it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And by the end of it, your whole body and mind is just one big giant callus. And I remember when that thing finished and we finally like it was at the point where there were you know we were just like marching down the street with a log on our backs and the commander was just like Gakoro 34 you are secured and that's it so you're done you drop the log you're just done you know you don't you don't know where the finish line is you just when they say it's done it's done and i remember going home through the airport later on that evening and uh I'm bleary-eyed, I'm beat up, I'm bruised, still mildly hypothermic, I'm destroyed, I'm hungry as hell, and I felt like a freaking god among men. All these people complaining about the temperature of their Americano and trying to get a seat at the Greek restaurant in the airport or complaining that their flight's 15 minutes late, and I'm walking through there, I'm like, you guys don't understand, I just almost died, and... I went through, you know, shit that most human beings aren't ever going to go through. And I've rinsed, washed, and repeated that over and over again with all these events I've done from the death race to multiple Ironman triathlons to, you know, world's tough as mutter to 72 hour adventure races, et cetera. And, and dude, you get to that certain point, like usually it's about eight to 12 hours into the event where you realize you're like, there's a lot of this left, but I'm not going to die. The human body's pretty hard to kill. And, um, you know, I'm at the point now where you could, you could drop me just about anywhere on the face of the planet. God bless the military. God bless the armed forces. There's a lot of super tough people who have been through way more shit than I have and who have done it in battle situations where you actually really truly are going to die. Whereas what I do is just like, you know, essentially, you know, fun shit that you pay for to sign up for to make your body stronger. But it's not like you're actually truly getting bullets shot at you. But ultimately, um, you know, having put myself through all that stuff, I think you could drop me just about anywhere on the face of the planet and I'd be able to survive and I'd be able to get through it because of the mental and physical resilience that I've built up through situations like that. So long answer, but, um, no, I freaking know, love it, man. It's a perfect answer. Idea. Yeah. Perfect answer. Uh, that's, that's, I can't end it any better than that, man. Where, where can people go to find out more about you? Uh, bengreenfieldfitness.com. Awesome. Well, Ben, it's been a pleasure. I know you're a busy guy, but freaking love it i love the way you ended it man and uh keep, keep killing it brother thanks for having me on bro just uh you bet shoot shoot me note when this goes live and i'll be happy to uh to tell my own crowd about it so sounds good man i appreciate it until next time brother take care all right later gator.